Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX, now playing, and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. As you may have realized, I watch a lot of sports. That's why I like Prime Video. It has all my sports in one app, like the National Women's Soccer League, included with Prime. Plus, you can buy Premier Boxing or stream the NHL and NBA playoffs on Max with the Bleacher Report Sports add-on or add Paramount Plus for the Masters on CBS. Prime Video. It's all your favorite sports in one place. Restrictions apply. Prime membership required for add-on subscriptions. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. It is getting that time of the year. It's Miller time. You don't need a watch or a clock to tell you. It's Miller time. Weather gets a little bit warmer. All of a sudden, the beer gets a little colder. It's beer cracking season. It, it Whoa, okay. I don't know if it says that on the calendar. Uh, Miller Lite, great taste, less filling, tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right to your door, visit MillerLite.com slash Patrick, or you can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. And as always, please celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer calories and carbs than premium regular beer. Miller Lite. Biggest hand in the night. going all in. Here are nines. Oh, you're okay. You're okay. Relax. Get you. Relax. Stay in a kid. Wait, are you looking at these parts the way they are chips on a poker table? Actually, probably. Because I still like playing, Dan. I got poker <laughs> chips still, Dan. I'm doing okay. I got the chips. <laughs> Welcome to That Scene with me, Dan Patrick, an Amazon original podcast where I get to talk to Hollywood's top actors and directors about some of the most iconic scenes that have defined their careers, helped shape the cinematic landscape, and even become fixtures in pop culture. On today's episode, we're joined by actor and writer Jake Johnson. He was born and raised in Evanston, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago. He began his writing career at the University of Iowa where he wrote a play that got him into NYU's Tisch School of Arts. While in New York City, he interned at Saturday Night Live and started a sketch comedy troupe called The Midwesterners. Jake eventually made the decision to move to Los Angeles. After earning himself a slew of supporting roles, Jake eventually landed a leading role in the show New Girl, where he played Nick Miller. That show ran from 2011 to 2018. In 2012, he also starred in the Sundance film Safety Not Guaranteed. Jake saw his career continue to blossom as he starred in smash blockbuster hits like Spider-Man, Into the Spider-Verse, and Jurassic World. Jake maintained a presence in the indie film world and went on to collaborate with fellow Chicago native Joe Swanberg. They created Win It All in 2017. Win It All was written and directed by Jake and Joe, Jake stars as Eddie Garrett, a small-time gambler, who agrees to stash a duffel bag for an acquaintance who's going to prison. He then discovers there's cash in the bag, and he can't resist the urge to dip into the funds. The scene in question is the moment when Eddie has painstakingly won all the money back he's lost 
but then he has a heart attack. We're talking about that scene where you have a panic attack. And, and I wasn't sure if it's a heart attack or a panic attack, but it got, I think it's in the script or in the movie both ways. Yeah, it is. It's unclear. But how do you go about having a panic attack? How do you go, hey, let me do some research on panic attacks here? So I went to NYU for dramatic writing when I came up, and everything about that school that was drilled into my head was about the three-act structure. And the peak of the movie, your protagonist has to like drive towards the moment and you re-ask the question of the movie. And the question of that movie is, if given a chance to stop gambling and break even but better his life, would Eddie quit? And so we knew like, well, we're going to get to that moment. And I don't think he would quit, but I think he really likes this woman enough that he would want to quit. So we knew we were building to this tension. So the way that we shot it was all those extras in the movie, we were really just playing cards. And we got a bunch of actual cards players. So we were just playing hands and the director was shooted. And so we built up to a scene where I would know on this hand is where I'm going to start building it. So I would try to actually feel the tension from the table. And then once I would feel something real, I'd really heighten it. And then, you know, go to the, the world of make-believe. I think I play a couple more. If I lose, ow. God damn, it feels like there's a... Get the cards and have the money. If, if I, I know. And if, if I, I'm up, I'm above 100. So I play until like... One second. One, I, I'm going, ow, fuck. I cash I, I, How did you think you uh, performed with your panic attack? That's a good question. I, I haven't judged it. What I will say is I think I did good enough. The guy in it with me with the long hair who carries me out is a friend of mine I grew up with named Nick Poole. And when the movie started, I had the image for having a panic attack and being carried in somebody's arms like a damsel in distress being run out of a casino. And I texted him out of the blue and he lives in Chicago. He's not an actor really. And I said like, how you doing with working out these days? And he's like, I'm mildly strong. And I'm like, could you work on carrying me? Uh, start doing some exercise. I might have a movie where you're going to have to carry me out and run a block <laughs> and a half. And so I think he did an amazing job. We did like six takes. And, I, and I'm not a small guy. I'm near 200 pounds. But I'm like, pretty nice stuff, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> how much of you is in Eddie? Or how much of Eddie is in you? So in all the characters that I play, the essence of me is in them because I'm the one doing it and I'm playing it. But what's never me is the story. So for Win It All, I am a gambler and I do play cards. And the reason I wrote that movie was I worked at the Hollywood Park Casino in Inglewood for my first job in Los Angeles. So I worked the graveyard shift with true degenerates. And I would see these people just winning and losing their life. That's not me. Even though I love playing cards, I'm a pretty conservative gambler. I like the game of it. I like the sport of cards as opposed to the adrenaline rush. I relate to him in terms of tone, but not in terms of story. When you're opening up the bag, it's like, I can't look. I got to look. Yeah, I can't. Right. I got to yeah. look. Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Well, that's not great. 
like you had this this tug of war going on inside of you there. Is that is that how you wrote it in mind? In his closet was a ticket to ride. And he really wanted to ride, but he knew it was a huge mistake. So it's like you have the most tempting thing in the whole world in the other room and you live alone and you're depressed. How are you not opening that bag? So I was like, that's the game of Eddie. Once he gets to the casino, I don't care how good he does. He's going to go until he's broke because this is the most fun he has. Just want to take $500 out of the bag and I want to gamble with it. And then as soon as I win anything, I put the original 500 back in the bag and I put the bag away. You're a loser. You've never won. You lose, lose, lose. USDA prime rib loser. No, I'm That's not. That's the cut of you. It's cut. It's a six ounce away of loser. You're not going to win money. I might. How important was filming in Chicago to you? I did three movies with Joe Swanberg. We did Drinking Buddies, Win It All, and Digging for Fire. And Drinking Buddies and Win It All, we wanted Chicago. Win It All, we wrote there. I got to go home and I got to film at home, which I hadn't experienced a lot. I got to see my family. I got to bring my kids. So all those days they're with their nephews and nieces and grandparents. I don't know how to make a Win It All type movie in California. California Split, which was obviously a huge influence for that. That's a California gambling movie. And there's a California vibe and a Chicago vibe. And I wanted Eddie to feel very Chicago. I wanted those big brick buildings that could withstand winters. I wanted that heaviness there. So if we didn't shoot in Chicago, I wouldn't have wanted to make that movie. Did the Cubs winning the World Series change you? It did. It ended a love affair I had with a team. As a little boy, I grew up a Cub fan. I had Harry Carey and Steve Stone in the booth. Everything about the Cubs culture I loved. My era was kind of fast food and malls and chains. And people would tell me about what it used to be. The Cubs were the only thing that I experienced that I got to feel it. If we won, it was magic. Because the other team was better than us. When the Cubs won Game 7, which has to be the most exciting baseball game in the history of baseball, the team has turned more into just a professional sports team to me. That it'll have its ups and downs. They're going to sell now. They'll get some young talent. They'll build it back up. But that thing that I used to love is now gone. Are you happy if the Cubs don't win it for another 100 years? I need to figure out where I stand with the Cubs. I don't know yet how much I care about the logo or if I care about the players. I got to see how things shake out. But you're okay if they don't win for another 100 years. I, I, I got my World Series. Yeah, you're good. I'm kind of good. Like, I want the video board gone. I want them to do less advertisement there. There's like a farmer's market at Wrigley Field now. I went there a couple years ago, and there's literally like they were selling honey in the stadium. I'm like, and the worst part, Dan, was the honey was excellent. (laughs) And it was great for my allergies. I want to go back to like hot dogs and like overpriced piss beer. I'm like, stop selling me products I like. I don't remember, remember the era now because of social media, players are like interacting more. You'll hear like another great story about like Tatis Jr. who like climbed in the crowd and did another endearing thing because they get it now. Back in the day when there was no cameras, remember they always would ignore us. You'd be right next to a player and you'd be like, hey, my friend has cancer. They're dying. Lift one finger. And the player would be like, so focused. <laughs> like It was like they were robots. You could be two feet from someone. Like, hey, Jody Davis, blink your eyes. I'm dying. It'll save my life. Never. He would never blink his eyes. <laughs>
Certain people talk about they hate losing. They, they don't enjoy winning as much as they hate losing. When it comes to gambling, is there a similar feeling to that? Are you a gambler, Dan? Do you play cards? I would do it with football games. Oh, you would. And what made you stop? Because I couldn't watch the games that I was betting on. <laughs> totally. Like, just a small thing there, Jake. Like, like, I, like, like I, hey, I'm not going to watch that game. Did you put money on it? Yes. I'd drive around for three hours. Because the adrenaline and the anxiety was just too much to enjoy it. Yes. The thing about gambling deep down, and I've realized it because I, I am a poker player. So I've sat in those casinos hours on end. What I had to realize is I'm not doing it for the money. I'm doing it for the enjoyment. And it's why I'm not a professional and I can't take it to the next level. My cousin Frank is a professional card player. He has a number in his head, 750 bucks. If he hits 750 on a Friday night, he cashes out and goes home and puts that in his savings. That's his pot. Well, if I have $750 that's extra, now I get to play loose. The only time that's going to get me off the table is when I have zero and my ATM won't allow me to take out any more money. That's the time to leave. Chips, please. Or the guy bluffs too. Oh, oh, yeah. You bluffed it? Okay, good luck. Thank you. Pitfall's not messing around. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, sir. So for Win It All, it was very important to me that even though we resolve that and it's a quote-unquote happy ending because he sees that he goes to the woman in the end and he makes it in time for dinner, Eddie will be back in a casino. <laughs> so <laughs> the only thing that gets him out of that table is he has a panic attack and his heart starts beating too hard and he's too jacked up. I don't believe that these movies should be lessons. I just believe they're entertainment. So Eddie doesn't really learn anything in Win the All. Eddie screwed up at that table, got off when he broke even. If he didn't have a panic attack, he would have lost all that money. People get nervous watching other people gamble. I would sit next to somebody at the high stakes table, and he was betting $25,000 on each hand. This is a friend of mine. And I'm watching, he had four hands. So he'd bet $25,000. It was as if he was betting $25. Yeah, totally. But he had no joy. There was no joy in his face. At one point, three of the four, he won. And I said, how's that feel? He goes, business. If you're really gambling, if Eddie's really gambling or when I was really playing cards, chips are no longer money. Right now, if we finish this and I go like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go make the biggest life mistake of my life. I'm going to not <laughs> listen to my wife's advice. I'm going to Vegas, baby. <laughs> when I got a $100 chip, because I'm not in a big gambling phase, I know what I can buy for $100. And so my hands will shake when I push it in. When you're really gambling, chips aren't money. They're chips. And so... The number it says on the chip gives you that power at the table. So if you're gambling and you want to bully somebody and you know they have 9,000 in front of them, but you have 15,000, well, you can push your 15 because 15 is bigger than nine. You don't think, I could buy a sedan for this car. <laughs> and I took the bus to the casino. You just think 15 is bigger than nine. People talk about you can see somebody's personality in a game of golf. You're with them four hours. You can tell how competitive, if they cheat. I didn't know if you can tell that at poker. I can tell people's personalities from acting with them and how they act in a scene. I'm not quite experienced enough with poker. So I think people can get a read on my personality. But the reason I'm not great at it is 
if they're acting, because the whole thing with poker is obviously you, you sometimes want to act differently than how you're playing. At a certain point, if you're really bad and you're very medium, I got your ass, man. I'm going to grind you up and take your money. But if you're good, <laughs> you got my ass. You're going to grind me up and take my money because there are people I'll be playing like a home game with. And seven out of the nine people at the table, I'm like, I just got to wait this guy out, but I'll take his money. And then there are two where I'm like, I don't care if I have aces. I'm folding because that guy scares me. <laughs> I think he's like reading my brain and I don't like it at all. I'm out of here. Like, I don't want to deal with them. They spook. And some of those players end up being the worst players. They end up being like, oh, you're just a true idiot. I believed you were brilliant, but you actually have nothing in your brain. My name is Edward Garrett and my friend uh, Gene was right. I'm addicted to losing. That was easy for you. Yes, you were right. So you must really be in trouble. I'm in trouble. All right. If you honestly start laughing after all that, I'm going to murder you. How do you separate yourself when you're writing for yourself? I prefer it because the first thing I always care about is the structure and the story and making the, sure the whole thing works. So the main thing that I'm trying to do is track the whole story. So you're building it that way. And once I know I have a structure that works, then I'm putting myself in those scenes and I'm trying to think like, are there any laughs here? Is there any tenderness here? Is there a love story here? I think it would be harder if I was just writing a character named like Gerald, 40, brown hair, heavy set. <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm just doing my tone. I, uh, I don't know how else to do it. But you get to voice Spider-Man. You get a call for Jurassic World. What was more important to you, voice of Spider-Man or uh, Jurassic World? I mean, if I'm being honest, they're all the same. Wait, are you looking at these parts the way they are chips on a poker table? Actually, probably. Any job I get, it, going back to poker, it is just more chips. I get to keep playing. As long as I get to do good work, I'm still playing. So Spider-Man was great, but the reason I liked Spider-Man is Peter B. Parker was written beautifully. The scenes that I performed in that, that writing was phenomenal. My name is Peter B. Parker. I was bitten by a radioactive spider, and for the last 22 years, I thought I was the one and only Spider-Man. You see, I saved the city, fell in love, I got married, saved the city some more, maybe too much. My marriage got testy, made some dicey money choices, don't invest in a spider-themed restaurant. Then like 15 years passed, blah, 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 super burn, I broke my back, a drone flew into my face, I buried Aunt May, my wife and I split up, but I handled it like a champion. Phil Lord, who rewrote uh, Spider-Verse a lot. You know, we had a great staff, but there'd be days I'd show up to record and he would hand me something that he had just printed out from his computer. And he would always preface it like, sorry, man, I just, can we try this? It's not great. There'd be like a typo <laughs> in it. And I'm not kidding. I would, you know, around like others, I don't like to overly show emotion. I'm from like a, just a different part of the country in a different era where my age group were not as open. But I would at times have like that like lump feeling where like there's like an MJ scene that would be really sad and I'd have to go like, this is really well-written, nice work. <laughs> like you guys are very talented. Let's shoot this thing. Let's record it. Let's go. And for me, that's the stuff that like really excites me. I loved the writing of Peter Parker. That's why I want to do another one. I just want to say those words, man, because the words were good. What are you going to do with your life after that? 
well, I hope it doesn't happen for a while because I still like playing, Dan. So <laughs> okay. if, if well, I got okay. I got poker chips still, Dan, I'm doing okay. I got the chips. <laughs> right now I got a few fifteens, some nines, I got a couple ten. Let's roll. <laughs> when you interned at Saturday Night Live, was there any part of you that wanted to audition for Saturday Night Live? Well, I really, as a kid, really wanted to be on Saturday Night Live. And then when I got there, I realized how much of a business it was. And I realized how naive I was. So I was 20 years old. I was in a sketch comedy troupe in New York. We performed everywhere. We would rent out like the old porn theaters in Times Square and charge a dollar for people to come. We were in all these old like theaters in the Lower East Side. And I believed you did that. And then all of a sudden you were Will Ferrell. That like you're performed for 80 people <laughs> at a sold out place doing stuff with like your childhood best friends. And then like the king of Hollywood hands you like a bucket of gold. <laughs> and like I wouldn't get headshots because you don't need them. Mm, no, I didn't. I didn't have much interest in an agent because like mm, I don't think you need them. I realized very quickly when I was at SNL that these were professionals and there was a hierarchy to the industry that I needed to learn. And so it made me take a major step back and figure out like, oh, I probably need to go to L.A. I need to get an agent and start this thing. Did you see yourself in any of those people on Saturday Night Live? No. You know who I saw myself as comedically, who really I looked up to was uh, Mr. Show. Did you ever watch that old sketch show with Bob and Dave? Yeah. So when I saw Mr. Show, I was right out of high school. And that was the first thing I saw where I thought, this is really what I would like to do. But when I saw Bob and Dave doing that show and I saw how good of like actors they were and they would do a skit, but they would like fully commit and like David Cross's character work. And that was like so funny and so three dimensional. And Bob, who's now like revealed himself to be like one of the best act, like you sense that. And their skits weren't just like little blackout skits had like weird endings. They were whole stories. And so I wanted to do that really badly. You brought up something when you were 28, 29, and maybe you were not going anywhere. But did you ever feel that guilt if mom and dad are disappointed in you or you let them down? The ceiling for me from my parents' point of view, I think, was pretty low. You know, like my brother was like the smart kid in my family. The stories were how like, you know, your other your older brother, Dan, was reading like the newspaper at three. You know, my sister was like the creative one who was drawing and like every story, even to this day when like now my kids are hearing stories. But you had an older brother or sister and you were the baby monkey. Like what happened? Why? Why aren't you like the others? All that's left is like the one who's got like like mustard all over his shirt. And so I think the fact that like I'm not living with them is such a happy thing for them. Is there a big picture goal for you that you say, I want to do that? You know what? It's more abstract. When it started, I grew up watching Cheers. Cheers for me was the perfect show. And I, I've watched every episode of it multiple times. I wanted to go to the bar Cheers and I wanted to be in Cheers. So as an actor, I wanted to be in a show. I wanted to be in a TV show that felt real enough for people so that I could experience what it was like to be in Cheers. And at this point, what I really want to do is, and it's a little selfish, but there are certain jobs I'll have 
where the actors are really good and the writing's really good and everybody cares and it feels really good doing it. So there's a, a story I heard growing up. It was a improv teacher did a thing about like everybody believing in the process and they were doing a scene in a kitchen. They did a whole scene, like a 45 minute scene, a couple in a kitchen. And then they asked the audience who were all students in that make believe kitchen with no set. It was two people in two chairs of the fake kitchen wall that they never talked about. What color was the paint? 80% of the people all said like light yellow or whatever the color was. Because those two actors had done make-believe so great that the people all had a collective unconscious and they all saw the same walls together. And that idea, I think, is so cool. And so all I really want to do in the future is get more of that, where when we go to work, I'm with a group of people who want to do it for the right reasons. We're all fully committing. Nobody cares about celebrity or how many followers they get or if the angle of their face looks good in this shot. But we're all just there to try to do this thing that we all do professionally. And if we can hit it and I can be part of those for a few years, that would make me very happy when they, I finally get knocked off this ride. What character would you have been in Cheers? Probably an even dumber Woody. <laughs> <laughs> Body-wise, growing up, I thought I was going towards Norm. You know, I was a cheeseburger fries guy every day of my life. Afternoon, everybody. Norm! How you doing, Norm? What do you know? Not enough. And so I just kept getting heavier and heavier. And I'm like, I'll be a Norm for sure. I'm not smart enough to be a Cliff. I don't have the details. And then as I've leaned into that show, I'm like, it's probably Woody. What do people say when they uh, come up to you on the street? Do you get Nick Miller questions from New Girl? So I've got a funny story about Win It All, actually. I was in Iceland doing a short with Jason Schwartzman. Jason and I took like a day where, I don't know how to describe it besides like we had a date. You know, like he and I walked around <laughs> Iceland together and went like shopping and got food. It sounds romantic. I was like... Well, this is lovely, Jason Schwartzman. <laughs> you are just a slice of pie. A delight. I, 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 you would like come out of a place and be like, I got us ice cream cones. And I'd be like, perfect. <laughs> but he walked into some shop and I didn't want to go in. So I was standing on some side street and I saw some, what appeared to be like a late 80s punk rock, like a punk rock guy who looked like he should be in the movie Warriors. Leather jacket, spiked hair. It was so over the top that it got scary. You know when somebody so commits to a style that you're like, no, I am scared of you. Well done. So he's walking towards me. I'm feeling tense. And he stops and he goes in broken English, you're that guy from that Netflix gambling movie? And I go, yeah. And he goes, I love that movie. I go, thanks, man. He goes, I like gambling. That one was my movie. Now, it would have been better if he said something about New Girl. It would have been worse. Here's the New Girl one. I was in Hawaii, and three Hawaiian guys on the back of a pickup truck drove by me with no shirts. <laughs> and I thought, like, those dudes are cool. I'm like, no doubt about it. Those dudes look cool. And one of them goes, da, 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 like, who's that girl? Who's that girl? And I was like, yeah, there it is, man. I was like, close to the theme song, but I know what you're doing. And then they all chuckled and drove off. And I'm like, all right, they, they watched New Girl, apparently. But you had a long run there. Hollywood can help you with success, but doesn't help you with failure. How did the lows help you with the highs or, the, or vice versa? 
The lows helped me because I didn't start making money as an actor until I was 28 years old. So I had already failed in the eyes of my loved ones. <laughs> so I'm kind of on house money. When you're 28 years old and you move to L.A. after going through like a really bad breakup, you know, from like the parents' point of view, things didn't turn out great. <laughs> so when I started, you know, doing commercials for years and guest stars and then when I finally started like, you know, getting on television... I had had a really nice run, and when the pandemic hit, the truth is, if that was it, I don't have that high of a ceiling. You know, I compare our business a lot to sports. I don't necessarily want a big picture of me outside of the stadium to help advertise sales for seats. I just want to be on a major league team for another 20 years. Like, it's really fun to play this game. I feel like I'm at a really nice place where jobs are coming in and I'm happy to take them. If I never have another thing that hits as big as New Girl, what a great wave that was. The day that I no longer get offered parts and the things I do, nobody buys them. Well, I hope I can stretch this out for another like 10 years. I enjoy doing this. And so that was the inspiration for Ride the Eagle. So about Ride the Eagle, your new film, if you're going to have 30 seconds to describe it, what would you say? I would describe it as the story of people coming back together after being isolated for a very long time. So my friend Trent O'Donnell, we did 70 episodes of New Girl together. And in the midst of the pandemic, when I thought my business had totally dried up and I was on a show that got canceled for COVID reasons, Trent and I talked and said, why don't we just write checks and make a movie that we want to make a nice pace that we like, a tone we like about how badly we miss other people and how it's time to forgive just to get together and have some laughs again. So that was the idea. And that was longer than 30 seconds. How important is it not only what you write, but where you're writing? Very important. So for this movie, it's reverse engineered. A lot of times writers start and they say, I want to write a movie about anything, space travel, and let the producers find it out. Well, on this, we knew we had limited budget and time. So we knew the locations and we wrote around that. So we knew we had access to the, the cabins. We knew we had access to the place where my character lives to start. So every scene and everything was built around where we could be and when and how we could work with other actors because we could not spend time with too many people in one space because of COVID. This was long before vaccines. So everything was about how do we get a story between a mother and a son if a mother and son can't be together? So then we created the VHS tapes and the talking and, the, you know, everything about it that way. Hi, Leaf. Look at me talking to you even though I'm dead. That's trippy, right? Well, I'm still here spiritually. I'm right behind you. Oh! <laughs> that was a good one. I got you. Do you personally reach out to Susan Sarandon? No, it was done through agents. Uh, Shaney Rosenweig read the script, a UTA agent, sent it to Susan. We found out when she was interested, we said, you know, we'll do anything Susan wants or needs to get her to do this. So we had a lot of meetings with her. And talent kind of shows why they're talented at a certain point. And for Susan, apart from just her performance, the questions she asks and the discussions we had about her character were just the right questions. In the movie's about a mother who abandons her son but does it because she's in a cult and she believes in the messaging of the cult. The son does not believe, so he leaves. So she wanted to know what that cult stood for, even though the cult isn't in the movie, to make sure she could identify with the character. That's a really good question and a conversation to be having that a lot of actors don't do. 
I uh, acted in a Sandler movie with Susan Sarandon, so we do have something in common. Pretty cool. She had no idea who I was. She had no idea who I was, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember, I, I think Sandler said, don't make eye contact with Susan. Just, it, it's better that you don't. Let's not even try to have a conversation with her. The guys that on my show, they were a film crew and I was the TV reporter in prison. And she's just looking at, like, how did these slapdicks get in this movie? <laughs> that is so funny. That is so, was Sandler messing with you or is that real about the eye contact? If, if Sandman says something in a certain way, then I respect that. Yeah. I could go, Danny, 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 don't make eye contact. Yeah, just, let's, just, let's just do the scene. <laughs> like she's not going to say, hey, you know, what do you, what do you think of uh, Fernando Tatis Jr., you know? So you want to know what Sandler protected her from is here's the example on how you and I are similar and why he knew you and stopped you. So I did a scene in New Girl with Prince. So Prince came on, did an episode of New Girl. So there was a scene where it was me, Prince and Zoe Deschanel. Hi. I'm Prince. So what seems to be the problem? Oh. How rude of me. I haven't given you enough time to freak out yet. You may do so now. Oh, my God! <laughs> oh, my God! <laughs> oh, my God! It was the big Super Bowl episode, blah, blah, blah. Well, we finished the take, and he doesn't get up. He just stays sitting. We're on a bench, the three of us. I'm not getting up. If Prince isn't getting up to go to his trailer... <laughs> Jakey J is not getting up to go to his trailer. So, you know, they got to relight it. It's going to take like 20 minutes. So I'm sitting shoulder to shoulder with Prince. So, you know, I start BSing a little bit. I know he's from Minnesota. I know he's a fan of basketball. So I start asking about like the T-Wolves a little bit. I start talking Vikings-Bears rivalry. And at a certain point, I'm just trying. I'm like, I don't know what to say. I'm a huge fan. Uh, and I don't think silence is the move in this. I don't think it's. What'd you do? I sat next to Prince like he was some stranger. It's fucking Prince, man. I'm going to say something. What I learned very quickly is that small talk about sports was not the move. Because at one point we're talking about the Vikings and I brought up some, there was some story that year of, I can't remember, but it was like some like backup who, I think it was a kid who was a quarterback, became a wide receiver, something. I liked his story. So I was like, pretty cool story about like blah, blah, blah. blah. And he said, I'm not the kind of fan you are, I guess. And I had to go like, I'm so sorry. And then we sat there quietly for a while and I realized somebody should have told me, don't make eye contact with friends. During the NBA finals, when Dennis Rodman was playing for the Bulls in Chicago, Prince is there courtside. Cool. I'm courtside working for ESPN. Dennis Rodman chases a loose ball out of bounds. And he, and he slides right by Prince and he gets up and he starts talking to Prince about going out after the game. Now, Prince doesn't say a word. You know, Rodman was like, what's the deal? Like he not, he won't even respond to him. Later, I found out that Dennis was told that he had to talk to Prince's bodyguard who then relays the message Incredible. to, to Incredible. Prince. So look, I think you and I are cut from a similar cloth. But what I will say about people like that is I'm, I don't have the thing where I find that annoying. I am so happy they exist. Like, 
Prince and Hannah Simone, who played Cece in the show, they exchanged numbers. They sent each other nice texts or emails once in a while. Obviously, Prince and I did not exchange numbers. I would have been happy to. We just didn't get to that point. (laughs) And the emails Prince would send to Hannah, a lot of them would be all in the subject line. And like the capitalizations would be really weird where it'd be like, Lowercase, lowercase, like, hello, H-E-L-L. And then the L and the O are in caps. Like it's like a, a message of for safety. You know, like there's a code in there. I sp- I've spent way too many hours of my life thinking about, like, the type of person who will send an email with really weird caps, with, like, no punctuation. And nobody in their life says, like, hey, Prince, uh, do you want to say like, hello, Hannah, comma, new paragraph? <laughs> it's just the way we communicate in English. And I love that like there are celebrities and people who don't live by the same codes we do. But don't you feel like we're just not part of the cool people? Never happened. But that's not my life, man. And I don't know what I would do there. I don't want any part of it. But like the weirdest part of my life is if like I meet somebody in an elevator and they ask for a photo and then they go like, you're a really down to earth guy. And I'm like, I'm in the same fucking elevator at the Marriott as you, man. (laughs) I booked this on Priceline, too, because it's cheap. What do you think? I'm going to leave this elevator and go on a jet to Mars? (laughs) I just have a different job, man. (laughs) Uh, Jake, good luck with the movie. Thanks for the laughs. I appreciate it. Thanks for spending time. Yeah, it was great talking to you, Dan. Thank you, bud. Bye, buddy. New episodes of That Scene are available exclusively on Amazon Music. And all of Season 1 is available wherever you get your podcasts. So make sure you follow us in the Amazon Music app. That Scene with Dan Patrick, created, hosted, produced by me. Our showrunner and producer is Brendan Pike, edited by Nathan Moody. The show is executive produced by Paul Anderson, Nick Pinella, and Andrew Greenwood. Our associate producers, Bill Ryan and Marvin Prince. That Scene is an Amazon original and a production of Dan Patrick Productions. It's Freddie Prinze Jr. and Jeff Dye back in the ring. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. Hey, Jeff, are you ready to rumble our way into an all-new season of Wrestling with Freddie? You better believe I have. I've been practicing my body slams, and I'm jacked. All right, don't go injuring yourself now. We'll be highlighting the best stories and matches of the week in wrestling from AEW, WWE, and have one-on-one talks with the best talents in the world of pro wrestling. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. 
NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 